Hi, this is Thomas from Quest and Chaos. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and joining us on this chaotic adventure. If you want to listen to our other exciting podcasts, such as Swords and Sages, Chaos Agent, Spelljammer, and many more, please visit our website at questsandchaos.com slash podcasts for links to your favorite podcast platform of choice. Now, if you enjoyed this content and want to support us, please consider joining our Patreon for exclusive content, cast interaction, and more at patreon.com slash questsandchaos. Now, enjoy the podcast. And then we do some dumb things. I'm going to roll slate. Do I look like I'm dead? I feel like I'm dead. Yeah. Everything's fine. A lot lot of gloom here lately. I'm alive. Everything's fine. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Untitled Podcast. This is episode 17. Are you sure? It is. 16 was live. Uh, We, uh, if you didn't catch it live, it'll be up on YouTube at some point. Worst intro ever. <laughs> I think we've had worse, but uh, we are going to have a, a special guest today. So we're going to zip mm-hmm. through the wick this week in Kickstarter. And we're just going to talk about one thing, and that is Birds of Paradise. They are bird themed dice, and they are launching a Kickstarter on October 15th mm-hmm. for, I think, like six or eight sets of dice. It's uh, They're amazing. We have prototypes of them yep. around here somewhere, and we've and been they- using them. They roll well. Let's put it this way. Well, Ezra so, tortures us constantly with his birds of paradise. <laughs> yes. So I mean, they roll like dice, <laughs> but the percentiles tend to roll really low. <laughs> so if you're playing D and D, you don't want to use those. But if you're playing Cthulhu, they are the perfect dice. Mm-hmm. In fact, we unofficially claim them as our official Call of Cthulhu dice. Officially. Yes. Unofficially. <laughs> okay. So anyway. uh, that is October fifteenth. Uh, we'll be sending out links and promoting yep. it like crazy. Yep. But that's it for the WIC. That's yep. all we're doing. So we- who else do we know who has a Kickstarter coming up? Uh, we know. <laughs> Why don't you introduce our <laughs> no. guest? No, you can. <laughs> all right. Uh, we are really excited to uh, bring Brett Schofield into the Untitled Podcast. How are you doing, Brett? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me today. Mm-hmm. It feels weird because I just want to play Call of Cthulhu with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since we've had an opportunity to actually see each other. So this is a, mm-hmm. a delightful chance to do a, a, a little digital reunion. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep, that's awesome. Good to see you. So before we yep. jump into uh, the librarians, which uh, you are the designer of. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. What? Brett was in our Call of Cthulhu home game and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Let's put it this <laughs> way. I learned a lot of crazy tricks. <laughs> so much so that uh I, so i was playing uh I, well i was playing jackson elias not as jackson elias because i didn't know he was from brooklyn uh but he had a weighted cane uh because it was such a great uh weapon that your character had and people still <laughs> comment like oh that's such a great idea i'm like yes that was all mine man about town <laughs> yet personal defense weapon <laughs> Yes. I'm pretty sure for that campaign, we needed to roll our stats. And so mm-hmm. I rolled really high uh, agility and body, and then 
medium to low everything else. And so I came up with this idea of a, a like second story man uh, who, after stealing enough money, kind of went soft, got fat, um, you know, <laughs> dressed in really nice clothes, uh, you know, try, tried to live the lifestyle of the gentleman that he had always wanted to. He just never had the, the finances to be able to mm -hmm. do it. Um, mm -hmm. so, so yeah, you kind of got the, the washed up beef. <laughs> <laughs> but still had the skills to like, like tranquilize dogs using meat by throwing it over the fence. Like those, those classic tropes. <laughs> <laughs> the tropes. I mean, dogs. back in the day, you probably would have tried doing something more traditional, but at that point in time, he was, you know, more interested in not really doing much for, mm -hmm. for results. So, yeah, yeah, or for, yeah, for any, to advance the campaign or for <laughs> anybody else. <laughs> I mean, if you throw enough money at a problem, it goes away, right? Yeah, it becomes yeah. somebody else's problem. Yeah. It's exactly how it works. Yeah, that's, that's having a job. <laughs> that is a job. Um, so There's no transition to the librarians. Well, there is, because Pass. I know uh, you <laughs> as a member of our Call of Cthulhu game, and then suddenly I see this post pop up that you have designed not only designed a board game, but designed a board game with an IP that I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think I would love to just kind of talk about that process of when you decided you wanted to make a game and, and mm -hmm. what was the process that, that you started with, I guess. Sure. So um, I'll say that I think there's actually a lot of connections between those, you know, Call of Cthulhu role-playing games and the current Librarian's Adventure card game. Um, that it's very uh, story-driven. You really get to kind of go through and play different missions. Um, so I, what I always look for in my board games are story elements and narrative elements, and I think that those pull through here. So that's that's kind of the through line from the RPGs of the, you know, of of the past and and this game. But to actually answer your question, um, a lot of it was driven by moving um, to Nebraska, where I currently live. So moving away from a lot of the, you know, gaming groups that I had been associated with, um, starting a new job, and so having a, a just not a lot of time to find new gaming groups. And you, you know how important having the right gaming group is to having a good gaming experience. Um, and so ultimately, kind of that uh, sense of loneliness drove me kind of back into designing games that I, I had done before, but never really seriously. Um, I think everybody who designs games, um, you know, tries a, their own role-playing system at some point, um, seriously or not seriously, or, or they, they make home rules for, you know, let's do, let's play Dungeons and Dragons, but I don't like the way armor class works. So mm -hmm. let's, let's insert this new system or people who like card games often will make their own magic cards, <laughs> you know, little things like that. And I kind of asked, could I do this more seriously? And so started scribbling on three by five cards uh, and began making a game that was no fun to play for the first couple of months. Honestly, it was it was pretty pretty painful uh, to get so through those first prototypes. So how long did it take you from like I'm gonna make a game to the like your first prototype like what was you know if can we dive into that a little bit when you're like you know so tell us a little bit about like how what was the approach when you're like scribbling on three by five cards what were what were on them were you laying them out like how did that work 
So the, the number one piece of advice that experienced designers, which I am not, but actual experienced designers give to new <laughs> designers is get your first prototype done as quickly as possible. It doesn't have to be the whole game. It mm -hmm. shouldn't be the whole game. It should just okay. be enough to test one little piece of it because the systems that, that make so much sense in your head and you think are going to be beautiful and going to be the next, you know, Gloomhaven mm -hmm. probably suck when you get them to the table. So for me, I think it was maybe two weeks before I had something on the table and oh, found wow. out how bad it played. Okay. Um, but it's, it's, you know, one little, it's, it's the seed point of a game. It, it's not the whole game. Um, so was that that one thing that you got on the table was that like sort of like the beginning mechanic was that what you felt was like the pro okay so it was kind of like the starting point and you was was your process then let's start and test then let's build and test then let's build and test was that yeah plenty of iteration you know every, every time you you play something you're trying to identify basically where the fun is in your game mm -hmm. and how can you take that little tiny nugget of fun that is surrounded by lots of not fun right for an early <laughs> prototype and how right. can you how can you get rid of all the not fun elements and how can you focus players on what is fun yeah so when you say not fun like give us an example you know what i mean because to me there's even in some games i'm like this is not fun mostly losing but mm -hmm. well so unfortunately fun is subjective right mm -hmm. as much as we would like a universal truth for it so it's what's not fun to you, the designer, or maybe to the people you're testing with. And mm -hmm. that doesn't mean it's going to resonate perfectly with everybody. But great examples. Um, so in my game, you do these skill checks. And at one point in time, the skill checks were entirely deterministic. Like there was no randomization to it. You would just, mm -hmm. um, uh, you would just be successful or not successful. And so that robs the game of tension. Like why do it? if there's no risk of failure. Okay. Um, so like, you know, role-playing games, for instance, have you roll dice to determine if it's gonna be successful, or you have an investigative game like uh, Gumshoe that doesn't really care about the tension of, are you successful? They care about the tension of, do you find the pieces to put together the, the puzzle? And so there, mm -hmm. they just give you the information. But, but that's because the focus is on something different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I do have a question about, because this is a story-based game, how, how early did you start developing the, the storyline to go with the mechanics, which ultimately later on, I'm assuming, was set aside? Yeah, so um, the librarian's license is relative, well, when I say relatively new to the game, I mean it came, came in about two years ago. And before that, there was maybe two years of work on, on the game. So, so about halfway through the game's lifespan, the librarian's license came in. Uh, mm -hmm. So before that, it was a story from another intellectual property. So it was just a story that I thought was interesting with characters that I liked. And what I wanted to do is create a system that would be flexible enough to tell lots of different stories. Um, and so ultimately, when I was looking for a publisher for this, I tried to say, look, this game will let you tell the stories you want to tell. And here's an example story with example characters that, that I told. Mm -hmm. But it, it wasn't a story that I came up with on my own. Gotcha. Okay. And 
and I'm assuming that that helped you avoid the the writer's block of trying to come up with a story. You just and and you knew and everybody knew that it was just a sample story. That's actually really smart. So I you know I think every creative goes to different places for their creativity. And for me, it was too overwhelming to try and do the the creative side of like world building and all of that mm -hmm. and the mechanics. Uh, particularly since I knew that any world building I put into it may well not make it into the final product, right? Like if I had spent a lot of time crafting my perfect sci-fi setting, uh, that time would have all been wasted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so where did you, where did you kind of get the experience to do this? Because again, talking to you, even though this is your first published game, uh, you know what I mean? Um, you, you sound like and again, this might be just in hindsight, but you sound like there's some experience there just knowing the fact that, you know, most people, if they're making their first game, may not know that, you know, somebody who picks it up to publish it may say, you know, we don't like the story. That's got to go. We're going to do this instead, you know, and you didn't sound like you ever had the idea that that world building was a piece of it and would be heartbroken if it was gone. <laughs> you know, so uh, did you have experience before that just knowing that that's, that's a potential, like how this actual process works. Sure. I was going to say hindsight is twenty twenty, but that seems to mean something <laughs> no. different with this yeah. year. Uh, but, but anyway, so I'm, I'm an academic by trade. And so mm -hmm. anytime I'm interested in anything, I'm going to dive in to, I was going to say the literature, but obviously that means something different in academia than it does mm -hmm. in yep. other realms of life. Uh, but but I tried to go in and say, what have experienced game designers written or recorded or mm -hmm. made videos about? Because they've already made all these mistakes, and it sure would be nice if I didn't have to go make them myself. So um, the, the early on process was about um, making those prototypes and iterating the prototypes and trying to learn as much as possible. So, you know, the car ride back and forth from work, you got to podcast playlist of mm -hmm. really good game designers telling you about dumb rookie mistakes that they made so that I didn't have to make them. Mm -hmm. What are some of those resources? I know that, you know, we listen to Ludology, um, but what are some of those other resources that uh, you used? So that's a really fantastic source. Um, there's uh, the Board Game Design Lab podcast, uh, which is uh, somewhat recently joined the Dice Tower Network as as another one, um, and there's there's a number of podcasts that kind of get started. People are interested in doing them for a time, and then they kind of die off. So there's like um, Game Designers of North Carolina that I think they just had some people in North Carolina that wanted to do this podcast. They did mm -hmm. you know dozen two dozen episodes and then kind of lost steam on it. Uh, but but really anybody else's experiences of what they had to do to make a game successful. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, p potentially even this episode of your podcast and, and I'm sure previous episodes where you've spoken with game designers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things is uh, we spoke to Brandon Ross with Bard Games and he they're kickstarting a game right now uh, called Tater Freighter which was a, you know, little card game. His, you know, his games are 15 minutes, 20 minutes um, fun. And they got the game and they went and they were trying to find the right IP for it. And all of the playthroughs, it ended up being like, no, people really just like the, you know, 
the world that was built of potatoes, or whatever it was, you know? So I, I think that's an interesting dichotomy of a designer who didn't, didn't want to give up that and ended up being successful. Cause I'm sure most people are like, eh, it's going to sell well, you know, way better if we put Marvel behind it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I find success is so often the secret sauce of the, the, the right creative minds and the right circumstances. So, you know, there, there's things that I did that would not be best practices, um, mm -hmm. but they ended up working out for me, or at least so far. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm sure that every designer's got some little circumstance like that. Okay. So once, once you had a game, so you said like two years of development and then the librarians came on board. How did the librarians come on board? What was that process? Yeah, so eventually, once you feel like the game is in a state where you could imagine it being published, um, and, and I should say that that takes a tremendous amount of external playtesting. So by the time ask. I was, sorry. I'm like, how many people, how many people, like, is your wife sick of your, your game at this point? Like two years ago, was she like, please get out of the house. Please don't ever mention it again. Like, you know, how many people play tested for you? Like how rigorous was it where you're like, we're going to play it again this week. And she's like, Oh, get, out, get away from me. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And then, and then let's get to, to your question. Um, so no, 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 playtesting is such a critical element of yeah. it. And, you know, I, I, once again, I'm an academic, I'm a scientist, what I want is data. So um, I took this game to a variety of like local game conventions to, to demo yeah. it and, and to get feedback from, from people I didn't know, because you, you almost can't trust the people you know. Right, they they have this pre-existing friendship with you, and maybe they don't want to insult you by telling you your game is rubbish or rubbish, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, or or whatever. So you got to find people you don't know to tell you how bad your game is. And and I'll, I'll mention that playtesters are really good at identifying problems and yeah. really bad at coming up with solutions. Yeah. So mm -hmm. a playtester will be like, "Oh, uh, you should do X, Y, Z." And XYZ might actually make the game a lot worse. And the question is, well, why do you think that would make it better? What, what problem have you identified that I can rectify? Because that's, that's my job as the designer. Um, and, you know, playtesters have sometimes suggested solutions to me that I've adopted. But mm -hmm. there have been a lot more solutions that I have not adopted. Was the mm -hmm. question, was it sort of an open-ended question type thing? Or did you have in the back of your mind when you play tested, you're like, these are the five questions I want to ask. Or I've learned these things at this point. Next time, these are the next five questions I want to ask. Like, what was your approach when you're talking to your play testers? It's a really good question. I think there's actually kind of two schools of thought on that. Mm -hmm. I think that most designers have very specific questions in mind. They want to test very narrow, specific things. Mm -hmm. For me, I was coming in without that experience. And yes, I had read about, you know, these questions to ask, but I felt like I needed more general questions like, did you even have fun? Like, would you be willing to do this again? Or are you looking for the nearest exit? Um, and so, so I tended to ask much more open questions mm -hmm. um, and then add some little elements of specificity to them, like a... a uh, suggestion by another uh, game designer was asking like how could you make or what could be done to make this game even just five percent better 
as in that, that little incremental, like what's the next mm -hmm. step, as opposed to the more broad question of just how could this game be better? Uh, but, but to answer your question about how many people, mm -hmm. uh, by the time I actually pitched it to companies, I had over 200 playtests. Okay. It did not involve me and did not involve my core playtest team. These are all strangers playtesting it uh, mm -hmm. and, and recording data from that. So massive spreadsheets um, listing like which story they played, whether they were successful or not, comments that mm -hmm. came out of it, um, okay. that kind of stuff. Did that also, do you think, taint some of their experience if they were successful or not? Um, just looking just looking across at the data saying, well, you know, these these criteria fall to this kinds of answers, these criteria fall into that. Because once again, you get very analytical, you can now look at trends and the more data you have, the easier it is to sort of pick things out. So what was that experience like and what were the things that you were finding? Particularly for a cooperative game, which the librarians is, mm -hmm. loss is gonna be something that just happens. And so you you want loss to be fun uh, because if a cooperative game, you just sit down and you win every time, mm -hmm. at least personally, I get very bored of it quickly. Yep. You know, I'll enjoy my first three or four plays like, oh, isn't this enjoyable? And then you realize that there's no real tension there and, and you stop playing. So, so for me, I wasn't so much concerned about you know, if you won, you liked it. And if you lost, you didn't like it because I want mm -hmm. loss to, to feel good. Like you, you accomplished something or you were tantalizingly close to victory. You want to try it again. Yep. Yeah. So I think in a competitive game, that might be a lot more important where one person's going to win and everybody else by default is going to lose. Mm -hmm. So what was the process of taking then that game and, and pitching it? Where did you do it? How how did you do that? Yeah. So so once once you have all that playtesting, once you're ready for that, you kind of have two options. You can either go down the role of um, self-publishing, which means mm -hmm. that you're going to uh, transition from game designer to publisher and developer and, and uh, art director and marketing team and all of that stuff. And I knew that I did not, I desperately did not want to do those things. <laughs> so the other option is that you go to pre-existing companies and you pitch the game. And um, you have to get accustomed to rejection because mm -hmm. there are a lot of games out there and, and a lot of really fantastic games. And there's only so many publishers, even, even in the days of Kickstarter, there's only so many publishers and they can only publish so much. So most games that get pitched are not going to get picked up by a publisher. Oh, I was going to ask you when you were in that prepping phase, you know, can we dig into that a little bit more? Cause you know, again, you're right. Not every, and not only that too, I was going to bring up, not every publisher is for your game, if that makes sense. They're not, you know, yeah. so how did you research that? And then when you're like, I need to make a pitch, what is it? Are you doing a one sheet with basic facts? Like what was your prep there? Yeah, so, so you bring up a really important point and, and a point that I think a lot of first-time designers overlook in that you don't want to send your, your game to every publisher. Mm -hmm. You want to try to narrow down which publishers might actually like my game. Um, so uh, I, I tried to identify publishers that had worked with intellectual property before, mm -hmm. right? Because I had already designed the game off a piece of intellectual property. So maybe it could keep that property or maybe they were like, 
they, they could say this game would be perfect for a property that we already have, okay. which is how the librarians came about. Um, and I also looked for publishers that, that did um, cooperative games and cooperative games that have a strong narrative component to them. Okay. So, you know, something like Pandemic, you can kind of weave a story by the player's actions, but there's mm -hmm. not much of a story to the base Pandemic. It's kind of the, yeah. the, the beauty of the, the Pandemic legacy system is that it weaves mm -hmm. a story into what's otherwise a relatively story-free game. Mm -hmm. As awesome as that game is, I love Pandemic. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, those were kind of my criteria. And some of that is just looking at your game shelf and being like, okay, what games are similar to mine and who published mm -hmm. them? Mm -hmm. But there's also lists of publishers um, online and whether they want pitches, because some don't. Some okay. want mm -hmm. to do it all in-house. Um, and um, what sort of games they're looking for uh, and things like that. Um, I, I can actually, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I can get you a URL Okay. afterwards if you're interested in some of these lists of publishers yeah that would yeah. be cool because not only that too i just like to look at what other games are out there you know what i mean you're mm -hmm. like who's who published all this especially when we talk to people who publish game um a designer then we look at all the other stuff that the publishers made and you're like oh <laughs> you're just like ching 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 money's gone <laughs> i was gonna say honestly the publishers like this too because they don't want their time wasted by yeah yeah. You know, if, if they're yeah. a cooperative uh, a car, a game manufacturer and somebody is, is pitching them the next Magic the Gathering, right? they, mm -hmm. they don't want that. They're just wasting yep. their time. Yeah. Yep. So when you prepped for your meeting, I mean, how did you, did you just literally cold call? Did you send an email? Like, what was that? What was your pitch? Like, how did you A, get in the door to have a conversation? And then B, once you got somebody to say, yeah, I've got 20 minutes for you. What did you do in those 20 minutes? <laughs> Yeah, so the first thing that has to be noted is this, uh, what I did was all pre-pandemic days. So yeah. these days, I'm guessing it's a little different. There's probably a lot more digital pitch meetings. Mm -hmm. yeah. But in a pre-pandemic world, if we can, we can imagine such a thing, um, uh, <laughs> uh, pitches were all done in person, or 95% or of them were done in person. And... And the, the biggest concentration of publishers and designers are going to be big gaming conventions. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So I went to um, Origins, um, and mm -hmm. this was my first big gaming convention. And I knew I was going specifically to pitch the game to companies. Okay, so, so you had pre-scheduled meetings with them, just like any other normal, you know, because a lot of us think about conventions not as a business place or a business opportunity to meet people and talk to other businesses, but like... Before conventions were like, what games am I going to play? <laughs> so I went in um, my my whole time there. I, I did True Dungeon once, which mm -hmm. I, I strongly suggest to anybody who's never been to one of these conventions before. It's a neat experience, but that was the only time I spent doing gaming for me. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it was there. I was there for business, I guess. Okay. Uh, so so first of all, um, you know, reach out to publishers ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Many of them will set up a meeting with you, assuming they like what, what your initial pitch is. And we'll get to what's in that initial pitch in a second. Um, but also I found a lot of like spur of the moment meetings. So mm -hmm. you'd, you'd wander up to a booth that's not currently being mobbed by people, right? The beauty of Origins is that 
there's actually times when the convention gets calmer. Uh, my understanding is Gen Con's just madness the whole time that, that okay. people at the booths never have a spare moment. They're just mm -hmm. going at full speed the whole time. But I would wander up to a booth that nobody was at, and I knew that was a company that I could be interested in or might be interested in my game. And uh -huh. they'd say, oh, yeah, let's let's uh, sit down now, or why don't you come back uh, in an hour? Let's have a quick meeting. Mm -hmm. um, so so what I sent, so basically I, I cold called people yep. via email. And mm -hmm. what was in there was um, like a one paragraph distillation of, of like what makes your game awesome and why that publisher might like it. Mm -hmm. And it can't be just a fill in the blank, you know, your company might like this game because reason, right? It has to actually be well-crafted and well-tailored to that company. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like I said, a, a short, this is why this game is special and worth taking a look at. And that is then followed with a one-page PDF that is what, what gets called your sell sheet, which mm -hmm. is a one page version of why your game is awesome and why um, a, a, a general publisher might like it. Okay, so in all of that stuff, do you ever put mechanics um, or any like, like, I don't know, just, you know what I mean? Like thoughts and feelings, like, you know what I mean? So I can only mark, I can only relate this to like movies or pitching, you know, concepts for television shows and the fact that you want to give the publisher like the feel of the game or, you know what I mean? Is that like, you know, give me some of those words. It's like, Jaws meets Star Trek. Okay, let's right? not. So, so that, my understanding is that that is kind of a rare example of something that works well in film and TV pitching and doesn't mm -hmm. work so well in, in board games. But but yeah. otherwise, my understanding is that there's there's a lot of similarities between pitching your TV show and pitching mm -hmm. a game, um, in that you you want to hit the major selling points. Like, why okay. will people watch this TV show? Or there, it's probably more about story setting, characters, yeah. atmosphere. Yeah. Or mm -hmm. a game, it's probably going to be a mixture of those and mechanics, okay. and not that you are diving into all the details of your mechanic, right? That's, that's going to go on and on forever. Uh, but, but places where players get a chance to make meaningful decisions that, that will be exciting and interesting to them. Okay. Um, yeah, something along so those lines. Would, would you be able to give us that short pitch of what the librarians is? Before, <laughs> you know, and, and before the librarians are attached. Sure. Oh, before the librarians are attached. So, so yes, I can, uh, but you have to keep in mind that the last time I gave this was two and a half years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but the, the, the notion for this game, oh, and the other thing you have to be aware of is I'm an academic and therefore extremely long-winded as I'm <laughs> here at this point. Yeah, our, our screenwriter teacher wanted to get our, our log lines that like, what's it about? Yeah, the who, you know, what, why you why. Care? 27 words or less. That yeah, was so our goal. For, for me to span. do that, <laughs> for me to do that, I have to write and then carefully edit yeah. down, like you know, yeah. I'm starting at half a page and editing mm -hmm. down to one sentence. No, but that is also the process, even in screenwriting and yeah. like other movie pitches, is the fact that you start with this big jumbly concept and you're like, let me just distill this down to the bullet points that people care about. 
Yeah. So, so for librarians, the mm -hmm. idea is that it's a, it's an episodic storytelling game. You get to play through different stories each time you sit down and you are playing with characters who are working together cooperatively, a couple of ways that you can actually help each other progress the mission. And you constantly have to weigh whether you're going to drive forward the mission and complete the story or whether you're going to be addressing all of these um, obstacles that stand in your way and are actually helping your antagonists to win. So okay. th that would be my, my super short. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In an ideal world, maybe I would have talked a little bit about one or two neat mechanics in there, but I think that would be kind of as long as you would want to go. So in, so in that sort of pitch, you didn't reference that it was a card game. Is that... That probably would have been an important thing. I love Thomas. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's like when you're writing, it's yeah, like cooperative yes. card games. I mean, you yeah, know I mean? I, you're now looking at adjectives to be descriptive, you know, adjectives and adverbs in order to like also emote feeling yeah. and understanding of what the game would be like to play as opposed mm -hmm. to... Um, yeah, I, I, I realized I was, you know, behind the wheel of a bus mm -hmm. driving towards you, but... No, it's a, it's a great question, right? Um, so, so yes, I think you do want to, to talk a little bit about the basic form that your game comes in. Uh, a pure card game is going to drive some publishers away, um, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's also going to attract other publishers because cards are easy to produce. Yep. Yep. And yeah. box and ship and do all those other small things that are expensive. Kickstarter coming they're, soon. They're heavy. <laughs> They're very yeah. heavy, so shipping is a pain in the butt. But as far as production goes, you know, boards and things like that are far more likely to get damaged and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So is there a, is there a board with with this game, or is it all card based? It's Play all card based type of thing. Yeah, there there is a a uh, an optional mat that is being designed right now, but honestly, it's just there for theme. Uh, it's just a, a neat picture that you can be playing on, kind of like you you might do if you were playing any other card game. Um, mm -hmm. So so yeah, it's it's just cards. Well, sorry, I should say just cards, and there are dice that are involved in right. resolving actions, but there's there's no board. Okay, so you've now so in the process, you have met with people and pitched them. Um, you know, do you actually bring something with you? I'm assuming you bring a prototype. Have you made a prototype at this point for Origins? Absolutely. So, okay. um, what I went in with is um, three prototypes that were fully made, and I felt like could go out to somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and what you know, if, if you have a publisher who. Well, I, I guess I should say the, the meeting's going to happen first, right? You schedule yep. a meeting, you sit down with that, that publisher. I am told that experienced publisher, or sorry, experienced uh, designers might get an hour mm -hmm. to play through a little bit of the game with somebody. As somebody with no track record, I never got to play the game with people. What I okay. got to do is kind of pull out some cards and, you know, pull out some, you know, the dice and mm -hmm. try to explain in 10 minutes or less why the game was special. Okay. Um, so those were always in-person meetings. Uh, but, you know, as I mentioned, I think now there's going to be a lot of um, Zoom sort of mm -hmm. pitches. But you know, you've got 10 minutes to convince this person that the game is worth looking at more. And okay. that looking at more is you hand them a copy of your prototype. Got it. Gotcha. 
when you do so, you have to kind of check in with them about the conditions that they're taking the prototype under. As in some okay. companies want to exclusively, like be the only company that is looking at the game. As in, we're going to take it. We're really interested. We think we're going to publish it. this, but we want to double check. So we don't want you giving the prototype to other companies. Mm -hmm. In my situation, they all said, look, we're interested enough to, to, to give it a shot, but we're, we're not, we're not like planting our flag. So feel okay. free to, to, to give this to others. But I think it's good to have that communication of, you know, are you comfortable with me showing this to other companies or not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you um, said you made three or four copies. So then they obviously give them back when they're done or uh, did they not? So not necessarily. Um, to me, that was pretty variable. Um, so three copies went out. I received one back. Um, so so the, the understanding is that when you give a prototype to a company, um, they might send it back to you, but might not. Um, a, mm -hmm. a lot of these companies have little, um, maybe like a, a really short contract that you sign that yep. you're, you're not like giving away any of the rights to the game or something like that, but you might mm -hmm. be saying that you're okay with them doing, you know, disposing of the, the prototype or, or whatever. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. okay. So I, I had a very variable experience with that and and honestly, part of it was how good the publisher was. So with, um, so were any of those like the speed dating um, scenarios that they set up or was it all meetings that you schedule ahead of time? For me, it was all meetings I scheduled ahead of time. The, the, the speed dating that they put together, uh, I think is a, is a neat opportunity but they will create this and, and post on Facebook that, hey, you know, we've just opened this up and five minutes later, all of the designer slots are filled. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who's not a big fan of Facebook and doesn't check it frequently, I would find out, you know, the next day. Right. Um, so, so that was, that, that's something I've never done partially just because they fill so quickly. The other thing is I've heard mixed things from designers about how useful it is okay. uh, as a publisher you are trying to absorb like a dozen different pitches and mm -hmm. that that's starting to put too many apples into too small of a sack right. it's hard to actually keep track of all of that um, and then as a designer it's like you know it's like normal speed dating right you've got 30 seconds to tell me why you're an interesting human being mm -hmm. and, <laughs> Maybe it's just that I'm so long-winded, I can't, I can't do that in 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, nice. I think mine would be too weird. And if you didn't get it right away, I'd be like, mm, whatever. <laughs> so, so you made three prototypes. And then you, you probably made three more. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, you ended up with everything Epic Games. So what, how did, how did that process go? Pitched to a variety of companies uh, at Origins. Um, had had a number of companies that were interested. Um, the other thing is that I had put the, the, the prototype on Tabletop Simulator. So mm -hmm. there were a okay. couple of companies that said, look, we'd love to give this a try, but we're not going to have space in our luggage. Like we've got so many, so much other stuff we've got to take home, but we're just not going to have space. Could you mail it to us afterwards? Mm -hmm. And I'd say, yes, but if you want, it's also on Tabletop Simulator. Right? I can give you access to it digitally. 
And some publishers really liked that and others said, no, we, we would, we want to play with the physical prototype, which okay. is reasonable, right? Tabletop simulator yeah. is a very different sort of thing than yeah. the tabletop. Right. Well, and not only that, if they're going to invest in something that they're going to have to make, they want to see what really it, what really shows up at the door. <laughs> well, sorry, let me answer your question first and then we'll talk about like what, what the prototype looked like, you know, mm -hmm. what are publishers expecting from a prototype? Yeah. Uh, so anyways, Everything Epic was one of these companies that um, looked at the tabletop simulator mod, um, really liked the game, reached out to me and said, you know, we have, we already have secured the rights to this license, the librarians, mm -hmm. uh, and we feel like this game and the IP really nicely tie together. How would you feel about adapting this game to a totally different intellectual property? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so to back up and talk about prototypes for a second, yeah. um, different designers have different thoughts about what the, the prototype needs to look like, but in general, the advice is to make it simple. Don't invest any money in art or in, in graphic design. All you need is something that's going to look clean. You don't need something that looks professional. Mm -hmm. So my question was always, is the graphic design standing in the way of gameplay? And if it's not, then it's good enough. So there's lots of icons available for free online. Um, go grab those. You know, you can grab um, free art online or if you're working with intellectual property, like screen grabs or, or things like that. And the cards were just a sleeve a random game card inside and a printed piece of paper in front of that. Okay. Uh, and then the dice were the cheapest dice I could find on Amazon. And then I printed out a sticker sheet with uh, the icons and affixed, spent oh, a couple okay. of days carefully cutting and affixing <laughs> stickers onto dice. Uh, and it works shockingly well. <laughs> yeah. As long as you're willing to put that kind of time and craftiness mm -hmm. into it. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. So, so did you have any artwork in it? I mean, and by artwork, I mean, did you have any? So the images of that IP, like characters and whatnot, were those on the cards? Uh, yes. So, like I said, the game was developed with a pre a, a different intellectual property, and yeah, mm -hmm. I went online and just grabbed um, kind of random uh, pictures from that that show and and put them on. Um, and, and the only reason for that is that I was trying to say, here's how this game could handle a pre-existing story, a pre-existing uh, something else. Um, okay. So I don't know if that is, is a general thing or not, but that's what I had decided to do. It okay. also meant that I couldn't post pictures of my prototype online. Lots mm -hmm. of designers like to do that to kind of build mm -hmm. up interest. I felt like because I had this intellectual property involved, it wasn't right for me to say, hey, I'm look at this card and look how great it is. Um, right. So, so it, was, it was limiting, but it was also a, a neat source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. But so it was more than just like a black and white card with character name and you know, abilities. Yeah, so, so what I was trying to do is something uh, clean and simple. So card name at the top, a little box where I could slap uh, my picture in and then a text box below 
and any icons that were included were free icons that I could snag from online. How, when, so how was the lawyer process? How was the legal paperwork? Because <laughs> I mean, I assume at some point somebody says we're interested, this is what we want to do. And then you're like, were you like, yeah, that everything's great. Or then the real, mm -hmm. like, then the, then the signing of the documentation happens. Like, you know, you're like, I'm excited somebody likes me. Now we have to get married. And now here's the legal piece of it. Right. Here's the real brass tacks. Like, how did that, how did that kind of suss out? Like that piece of negotiation? Did you have legal representation or were they like, you, you should just do this and trust me? No, that's a really good question. And that's an incredibly important piece of this, that, that ultimately there is going to be a contract. And the more specific that contract will be, I think the happier the publisher and the designer will be. You know, you, you don't want to start a business relationship where everything is fuzzy. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you want clearly delineated um, responsibilities and, and things like that. There are some really good resources online for what a typical contract looks like, because I had no idea what was fair to expect or to demand or to ask for or mm -hmm. what the industry standard was. Um, I ended up uh, kind of closely going through a contract process with two different companies. The, there, there were a couple of companies that were interested in this game. Mm -hmm. um, and as I was kind of deciding between them, kind of looking at, at their contracts, it was really helpful to, to, to turn to experienced designers and say, what's typical in this industry? Instance, that is kind of the question. Yeah. What is typical? Like, what is an expectation that maybe you had that was like, nope, people are like, nope, that just doesn't happen. I think actually my expectations were, were very low because I wasn't coming <laughs> in thinking of this as a business. I was thinking about it as I just put something together. And yes, I put mm -hmm. a lot of time into this, but I almost didn't think it was ever going to go anywhere. You know, that mm -hmm. I just enjoyed the creative process. Um, that's probably not the correct, you know, that that's what leads to uh, getting paid and exposure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, th this is not my profession, right? This, this was mm -hmm. a hobby that has turned into a jobby and, and I never really thought that that was going to happen. Um, but, but, um, as an example, most companies are simply licensing your rules, like your game from you. You mm -hmm. still own the rights to the game, and they will usually revert back to you at a certain point. Mm -hmm. As in, if the publisher hasn't uh, put anything out for five years or some amount of time, those rights revert back to you. Okay. Um, every company is going to be different. Some some companies do just straight out buy the game from you and say now it's our game but but we paid you a lot of money for yep. more money right. uh, for the rights to just buy this game from you mm -hmm. but usually and this was really surprising to me you are effectively licensing out your your game system and at some point the rights revert back to you mm -hmm. yeah so that you could then take another ip and make that story happen mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a lot of examples of, of that, partially because the game industry moves so quickly that, mm. you know, five, six years from now, a lot of the games coming out today are going to feel outdated. Um, but there is that possibility. Um, 
and I think there there have been a couple of examples of that. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head of game comes out, there's a long time delay, it switches publishers, it comes out again. Yeah, or things that okay. we don't know about because yeah. it's obviously masked with different IP. Or yeah, I mean, you think about uh, Lords of Vegas, for instance. Mm -hmm. They got their rights back, yeah, and then redid a Kickstarter to launch that and a new expansion. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's an that's awesome example. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and an awesome game <laughs> <laughs> that somebody wants to play all of the time. <laughs> I don't own it. The only time I get to play it is at like Jill's house for his birthday for Ezra's birthday. Yeah. All right, so you've signed the contract. You guys are now hitched. <laughs> so then, then, so then you had to, to consume the librarians. So I, I actually chose to do that before I signed the contract. Okay. Um, so some game companies uh, just want to take your game and then mm -hmm. say, hey, we've got in-house development people. We'll take it the last 10%, which, of course, is always going to take the same amount of time as the first 90%. Right. Yeah. Um, for, for this situation, I wanted to learn more about the game industry. I mm -hmm. wanted to be involved. Um, so one of the companies that I ended up saying no thank you to was a company that just said, we're going to take it from you and, and we're going to handle it and you can move on to other projects. Mm -hmm. I was like, but I'm, I'm not ready to move on. <laughs> I still want <laughs> right. to work with this. Um, so, so everything Epic wanted me to take the game and rebuild it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know, was I going to like this property enough to do that and do it well? So I went through and consumed all four seasons of the television show and all three movies before I signed the contract. Okay. Did any of your mechanics change based on what the characters are or based on what the movie or, you know, what the television show is like? Did you ever then just say, okay, I'm going to start now taking these stickers off of the dice and taking these stickers off of the cards and adding, you know, Noah Wiley's face to something and Jane Curtin and what's the old John Larry cat? You know what I mean? Those guys, again, yep. too, I've watched, I've watched librarians before I knew it was, you were making a game. So. Mm -hmm. But like uh, what changed after you started applying those, those items to it? It's a mixture of both. So mm -hmm. there, there are some things that I think are fundamental to like the game system that remained the same, right? That, that was why the game got picked up is because of some of these fundamental mechanics. All the window dressing changed. So for instance, there's almost no cards that just got copied over into mm -hmm. the librarian's world. So how all the cards interact with each other, um, the, 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 thematic and mechanical connections between those, those are all new. But the, okay. the core underlying, like, how do you resolve an attribute check? Um, how does the game handle your resources and the resource economy? That is almost unchanged. Few little minor tweaks to, to adapt it better to the license. Mm -hmm. So in that process, did you kind of have, was it more a reiteration or was it almost like a relearning in some respects? You know, it's kind of like going down to the foundation and rebuilding the whole house that, that mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're keeping that that slab foundation that got laid down before because that that is all still good. But mm -hmm. every, the whole house is being taken down to the foundation and rebuilt, I, okay. I think, is really the analogy I would give. OK, so okay. then so after watching all of those shows, <laughs> after designing this game, three weeks later, after watching all the TV, two questions. <laughs> Who's your favorite character on the show and who's your favorite character in the game? 
Um, so, so um, Jenkins, who is played by John Larroquette, is without yeah. a doubt my favorite character from the television show. Um, mm -hmm. He he is a a scientist at heart, and he is trying to figure out how magic is ultimately just an un, a currently unknown form of of mm -hmm. science, and that yeah. that speaks to me as a scientist. Um, and really, John Larroquette can do nothing wrong. Yeah, I was about mm -hmm. to say, like, I was watching an episode the other night, and because now they're like in rerun everywhere. And so John Larroquette, like, I forgot, Rebecca Romaine Stavos was just working through a problem and talking and talking and talking. And he's like, that's all he did. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, he didn't even have to say anything. I was like, end scene. Thanks, John Larroquette. <laughs> yep. And I think he does a really good job of, of playing a character who has um, many years of experience. I don't mm -hmm. want to give away any spoilers from the show, but it's a character with a lot of, of both life experience and just knowledge. And I think mm -hmm. it comes through really well. I, I think in a role-playing game, it's always hard to play a character who's smarter than you or has experienced things that you haven't experienced. And yeah. I mean, John Larrick has a fantastic actor, so he nails it. Yeah. I was about to say, we were watching um, Lovecraft Country the other day, and I'm like, I can tell that this character has no idea about astrology. Like, you can tell the woman is just saying the words, you know, in the script. So yep. when you, so to follow up on Thomas's question, besides your favorite character, um, <laughs> now yeah, I'm just like, to say. What, the show? what is your favorite artifact that has gone missing? <laughs> Actually, that brings up a good question. Everything, like how much did you pull from the show and the feeling? How much did you have to say, okay, this is going to be a little bit different and not true? Like how much are fans going to be like, I completely get this and I'm in the game and I'm in the movie and I'm in the TV show versus, oh, this is a little bit different because it has to fit the game mechanic. Yeah, I think there's three major things you're, you're weighing in a game like this. The, the first is how true to the episode are you being? Because if, mm -hmm. if you're if you're truly faithful to it, you'll you'll go like scene by scene and you'll play through each scene and each scene has to resolve exactly the way it resolved in the TV series. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is is like how much of a game is going to be, right? A game has to be open to new things happening. Yep. You know, in the show they went left and now you're going to go right. There has to be new ways to address the, the big problem. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing you're weighing is how is a how is somebody who's never encountered the IP going to respond to this? Because you you want it to be interesting to somebody who isn't a fan of the librarians, mm -hmm. right? Obviously, fans are going to be more interested, but you you want it to to play well regardless. Um, and that's that's really hard to balance. So what I went and what I think is the most important is the gameplay of saying okay. these stories, that the, the basic problem comes directly from the TV show. So for instance, uh, early in season one, uh, the characters get sucked into a recreation of the labyrinth from Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. Well, in the game, there's something similar. You get sucked into to a labyrinth. Um, but the way that you navigate through that is there, it will feel really familiar to fans but is not like a beat by beat recreation of the show that, that mm -hmm. really it has to be its own game to present you with ways of solving that problem that were never thought of by the characters in the show um, and you have to be okay with characters who weren't present suddenly showing up 
Like maybe you want to bring in um, Flynn from the movies, or maybe uh, Nicole, who, who's Flynn's guardian in the first movie, who, mm-hmm. who you know isn't even present in the TV show until season four. Maybe she just shows up because somebody wants to play her. And so you have to have a game that's flexible enough to allow for those alternate histories. Mm-hmm. So you're coming into the final stages now, since your Kickstarter is going to launch. What are, there's actually a lot of questions here. Um, you know, so again, you've kind of basically remade the game and this time it's final artwork. You have the IP, et cetera, et cetera. What are sort of the things that happen in this last month that you're just like, okay, what, what would somebody expect? Because you're like, okay, game's done. Now what? Like what happens in the now what? And also is the game actually really done? Like, are there physical boxes ready to go right now? Like, or is it just kind of, that's not the process. Well, so, so the idea with Kickstarters is, and what Kickstarter as a company says is that the mm-hmm. product should not be finished before the campaign begins. Mm-hmm. Obviously there have been some examples of that, but on Kickstarter's website, they say that is not the purpose of Kickstarter. It's to mm-hmm. generate funds to create something. Yep. Um, but I will say that the, the game is in a place where we're comfortable publishing it now. Okay. Like as in once we generate funds, it should be able to be to be printed at that point. So we already have a, and I shouldn't say we, I should say the publisher, right? Everything Epic. So not including myself because as a designer, I'm really not intimately involved in setting up the Kickstarter page, doing the marketing, uh, reaching out to companies um, to, to, to actually print it. All of those things I would do if I was self-publishing and mm-hmm. the whole reason I'm going with a publisher is to not do those things. <laughs> yep. So, so I am tangentially involved <laughs> at best with with all of these really, really important elements, mm-hmm. and that's why you have a team of people working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so as far as what's happening right now, mm-hmm. um, a lot of what's happening is people, not me, are frantically doing last minute <laughs> preparations. Um, whereas I'm continuing to make sure that the game is as balanced as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it, it's weird. These things from your childhood that stick with you. I think when, when DVDs were first getting extended features, there was like an interview. I don't even remember which DVD it was where the director was saying, movies are never finished. They're just abandoned. And yeah. then you could the always deadline. make it better. Yep. always do more on it but at some point you just you just have to release it yep. uh, and I, I feel like that's true of every creative endeavor including games like even now I'm tweaking numbers up by one or down by one um, to to try and get the balance tighter and tighter mm-hmm. um, one of my goals is to make it is so the that... publisher like we're going to print stop it <laughs> <laughs> so at at this point I've been told by I, I have delivered the, the final text of cards, mm-hmm. but it could be that a, you know a couple of cards will still be changed even at this late stage. Yeah. Um, but my goal is to make every game feel close. That win or lose, you know, if you lose, you feel like you were almost there, and if you win, mm-hmm. you feel like you just scooted across the finish line before all hell broke loose. Mm-hmm. And so, so finding that balance for for myself, who, who's played the game more than any other human, 
uh, and for a new player is a really interesting experience. Mm -hmm. Did did you get any uh, when they were like designing stuff? Did did they send you, hey, this is what this card is going to look like? What do you think? Or are they just handling all of that? So uh, um, yes, I I got kind of proofs of like here's what the card frame would look like, um, and I would say that. Um, my, I, I had some input on that. Um, it's, it's one of the weird things about publishing with a publisher is that you, you go from a game that you like gave birth to, right? You, you were the yeah. sole creative force behind this. And now you're part of a team that's working on it. So yeah. I had some ability to have input, but ultimately not decision-making power on how the cards are going to look. Uh, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was your responsibility there then just to make sure that everything on the card was still true to the game itself. So basically you were proofing it for mechanics for reasons, like if, you know, how it reads, you know, because that's something that I do find is that I read things over and over and I'm like, it has a comma. Does that change the meaning? Like literally we were doing that with Gloomhaven yesterday. And I'm just like, what does that comma mean? Do I have to do this first in order to like, yeah, you just go down that rabbit hole of what does that comma mean? Well, and particularly with a card game, because every, every card now gives you new text. Yep. Uh, and it, I think it's one of the reasons a card game can be intimidating the first time you play it. Because you just finished reading the rule book, and that was a monster, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody likes rule books, even if they're well-crafted. And yep. now you draw a hand of cards, and you're like, oh, God, I have to read more text? <laughs> like, really? I can't just play the game yet? I have to read what these cards do? Um and so, yeah, that's really important, trying to make it concise and understandable and as unambiguous as possible. Um, what I find is that there's always going to be someone to interpret things yeah. in a bizarre way that you never thought was going to be possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but but trying to make it as unambiguous as it, you can for a general audience. Do you have any other follow-up questions? I mean, I have a hundred follow-up questions, like who's on the team? How big is the team? Like, <laughs> how big is the publisher? Would you get a bigger team if you had a different publisher? Like, I could just go on <laughs> forever. So I think, I mean, just looking at, at their Facebook page now, the for everything Epic, uh, the Librarians is, the, is their header, mm -hmm. but they're promoting Rambo uh, right now. Do you yeah, know anything so, about Rambo? The um, game. So, so I know a little bit about it, but I don't have any insider information on it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So so that was a Kickstarter that finished two years ago, year and a half ago. Uh, and okay. they're just they're 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 finally getting it into the hands of backers. So uh, there were some unfortunate delays on on that. Um, uh, some of them being internal things and some of them being uh, making sure that the licensor was okay with everything. Um, the, the the weird thing about working with an intellectual property is that the license holder ultimately can thumbs up or thumbs down things for any reason at any time. Mm -hmm. So you can be like, well, you were okay with this the last three times. Why are you now saying you're not okay with this? Yeah. So I, I have no idea what the actual story was, but but after some delays, Rambo is now uh, in people's homes. Okay. And then, so is, so, so that was, that's a long time frame from um, Kickstarter to fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. And I the goal is to shorten that for librarians. <laughs> yeah. So okay. I think for Rambo, it, you know, some Kickstarters, the game is 
80% done when it goes to Kickstarter. And then you get these, um, these updates about, oh, we're still playtesting the game, or uh, we promised you all these stretch goals, but they hadn't been designed and we're in the design process. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, that drives me insane. So yep. here, mm-hmm. the stretch goals are all designed. They've all gone through the same rigorous playtesting process as every other piece of it. So, uh, and we've been working with the, um, uh, the, the license holder for librarians. They're called mm-hmm. uh, Electric Entertainment. The whole way, they've been really great to work with um, and very cl- overall pretty clear on what they want. Um, I think, okay. once again, it's the ambiguity that drives you crazy. Uh, and, and leads to delays. So, mm-hmm. so they've been uh, a really good partner. Um, once again, I haven't directly worked with them, but but at yeah. least going through an intermediate, it seems like they've been really uh, great to work with. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping that this is going to be a really quick turnaround once the um, Kickstarter funds kind of a final read through of everything by an, a, a, a person who's never seen the game before. We blind play tested it a couple of times where someone learns it just from the rules, but mm-hmm. we want a professional editor to go through and do one final loving pass on everything and then print. And you wrote the rule book? Yes. Uh, which, uh, so, so I wrote the rule book. It's been edited by others, which, which should be comforting to everybody because once again, I'm an academic and I can't write <laughs> anything succinctly to save my life. Um, so, so yes, uh, the, the rule book actually existed before it became the librarian's game mm-hmm. um, and, and has obviously gone through a lot of revisions since. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so I think that's, I mean, definitely interesting, definitely in-depth. Thank you for sharing yeah. that experience because, um, yeah, I mean, in total, how many years? Right around four. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, so, so a, about two years in uh, to kind of, get the system working the way I wanted. And then it's mm-hmm. been about two years since the librarian's license. Um, okay. you know, we, we signed the contract and brought the librarian's license on mm-hmm. board. Um, and honestly, I don't know how long that is compared to most games. W- one of the things I think is true about this style of game is every time you tell a new story, it's almost like a new game. Like mm-hmm. You have to rebalance a totally new scenario. And so I'm guessing that these style of games take a lot longer to balance than a euro game you know where mm-hmm. where every playthrough is 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 the same except for what the players do so what what is the one sort of takeaway advice you would give to somebody who is thinking of designing a game like i am like i'm thinking <laughs> i would like to design a game i'm thinking sure whatever good luck to you sir <laughs> well so uh one piece of advice. Uh, That's what I was saying. When he said one piece, I was like, my God, to me, just listening to this, like my takeaways a lot of times are just What is the start? Where do you, where do you start? Okay. Let's start. Let's start with that. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I think the starting point is, is two places at once, depending on how much time you have. The most important thing is start educating yourself about how people design games. There's a lot of game design groups on Facebook and, and other places um, honestly, there's a lot of local game design meetups. Um, even in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, uh, mm-hmm. there there is a game design designer meetup that that happens. So there there are there are communities to plug into. 
And then the second thing is just get started and don't keep it all in your head because we can convince ourselves that the dumbest ideas are, are perfect. And that is just our nature as humans, right? This game's going to work out great. It's going to be beautiful. I can't believe how these mechanics are going to interweave and then it all falls apart on the table. So get it onto the table as quickly as possible and educate yourself. Yep, and torture your family. Sounds good. You're going to have to play that game over and over and over. Nope. nope I, I no. can find it to two pieces of, uh, of, of advice. Hopefully, hopefully that's short enough. Nice. Cool. So okay. thank you, Brett, for taking mm -hmm. the time to yep. talk to us. Uh, we're really looking forward to the Kickstarter, which is supposedly launching very soon. Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, we're looking more forward to the fulfillment. Well, yeah, but... Uh, I mean, Kickstarter, first, yeah, but... One thing at a time. Yeah. yeah, step one first. You have to first back it, and then you get it. Mm -hmm. then you get it so. well thank um, you so much for your time it's been really delightful to come and and both reconnect with you and also mm -hmm. to get to yep. talk about the creative process cool thank yeah. you so we appreciate it thanks are you gonna wrap up the segment or no that, Just, thanks gonna, audience bye <laughs> yeah that's gonna wrap up our interview with brett schofield designer of the librarians mm -hmm. is that how we end it sure sounds good to me okay now you want to wrap up the episode nope that's it done that's it okay Goodbye, Thanks, everybody. everybody. <laughs>